It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, gotta live diverse. It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, live diverse. You are listening to The Lens Living Diverse, a podcast brought to you by the CNIB Advocacy Team. Join Nisha, Vivi, and I as we speak to individuals with intersecting identities who live with sight loss as they share their unique stories. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Lens Living Diverse. I am one of your hosts, Ben, joined by my wonderful co-host, Vivi. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition. Yeah, I'm so excited. I I just love doing this uh, podcast. It's always so great to get different perspectives, of course. So today we have a special episode. And as I always say, I know people are so annoyed by me saying a special episode. But like I said, to my heart, every uh, every episode is special. Uh, So today our episode is on allyship. Uh, So when you look at diverse communities, whether it's uh, culturally diverse, racially diverse, uh, religious, gender identities, uh, sexual orientation, uh, race, it's so important to have allies to walk along these individuals who are doing the good fight on diversity and inclusion and even accessibility. And I I forgot to even include disability as well. So uh, today's episode, we are going to actually highlight the importance of allyship. And we have a special guest, someone who I know quite well. uh, When I started at the CNIB, that was the first face I saw. And then also, uh, it's a little bit of a full circle because this individual um, was the one who really pushed for this podcast and uh, the DNI aspect to disability. So we have the wonderful one and only Kat Hamilton. Kat, how are you doing today? Hi, Ben. Hi, Vivi. Really glad to be here today. Like you said, Ben, I'm like number one fangirl and <laughs> I've now become a star. So I'm, I'm really happy to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Exactly. Where a start is born. So we are going to start off by asking you, Kat, to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your experience with allyship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So first of all, a bit about me. Um, So as you mentioned, Ben, I've uh, worked with CNIB for about six and a half years now, Um, various different roles within the advocacy team here. Um, I took a really interesting route to advocacy and social justice. Um, I know a lot of people will come to, especially in a professional context, will come to advocacy like through doing political sciences or some kind of public policy degree. and I actually started off in academia doing uh, ancient history, classics, <laughs> linguistics, nothing, seemingly nothing to do with, uh, with advocacy. But um, a lot of my research that I did was around power dynamics and how they uh, interplay in society and, and in uh, literature. And I was doing this for a few years in my my younger years um I thought I was going to be an academic uh I thought I was going to be a get my PhD become a professor and uh I always joke I think I had like an early life crisis um (laughs) because I just I really felt I was doing all this great work around power dynamics um but it was so far removed from actually making a difference in the world and the power dynamics that I was seeing playing out in my life and in society. So I, I actually left academics, um, got a job at RNIB, so the Royal National Institute of Blind People in the UK, uh, worked for a few years there with their advocacy team um, and uh, really got into that, I should mention, just through my volunteer work, like while I was doing all this academic stuff and looking at power dynamics, I was uh, volunteering in things like the women's movement, uh, the LGBTQ society, 
uh, and they also were really great and intersectional. So looking at things like poverty rights, um, partnering with like Muslim women's organizations. Uh, I did some theater outreach in uh, a women's prison in the UK mm-hmm. um, and just really immersed myself in actually doing that hands-on social justice work as well. So um, when I was in academia, I was in Canada for a year and uh, really loved it here. So then decided after a few years at RNIB that I wanted to come back to Canada and mm-hmm. get get a job here and stay here. So uh, so I've always been really interested in, in social justice and just can't, I think it's fundamentally in me. I just can't bear to see something that is, isn't right, like that just isn't right. And um, I feel like I'm going on a bit here about my life, but I'll just wrap up maybe <laughs> by saying that I, uh, I worked in government services for a few years as well in, in government call centre where I think dreams go to die. And <laughs> I just got really t- tired of seeing all these, you know, social issues coming to play, you know, people calling us up about, all of these different issues that they were having. Um, so I worked in like a social assistance administrative role and uh, had always been interested in complex social issues. So all that kind of melted into one big pot and just wanted to, I know it's corny, but I just wanted to make the world a better place. This is what I love doing the podcast because you just learn so much about people that you have worked alongside so that is amazing and there was where dreams went to die here's where dreams are here to thrive right (laughs) yes and I I love that you say that you took the road to academia and it took you to advocacy because that's my parallel path too I started off as a literary scholar and uh the way things worked out, I ended up working in advocacy at CNIB as well. So I like to say I'm a recovering academic, but uh, it all worked out for the best. Excellent, excellent. And we we have a, a meeting every Thursday for recovering academics. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's many of us out there. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get into the nitty gritty. I'm going to start with a question with you, Kat, and then Vivi, if uh, you have any answers to it as well. More than welcome to jump in. You know how it is here at the Lens Living Diverse. Uh, So, Kat, what is your experiences? And I know you did mention a little bit in your intro, but what is your experiences with diverse communities? Yeah, so... um... I mean, I would, to be fair, I think a lot of the experiences I have in more recent years have been through my professional work with, uh, with CNIB and being an ally to the sight loss community and the wider disability community. So uh, I'm not someone who has lived experience of sight loss um, and I don't even have a personal connection to it directly. So um a lot of work through CNIB and RNIB. Um, and if I, maybe I'll just touch on this now because it's something I often reflect on. Like I actually got attracted to working with an issue that didn't affect me personally because I just find it so much easier to do. Um, like, as I mentioned, I'd been working with like women's rights, for example, and and those issues and I find it really difficult to advocate on issues that affect me personally which sounds so ironic and I think it caused a lot of burnout in my personal life so um, I, I love kind of working as an ally with with other people with other communities and uh, I, I think I'm still on a journey in a lot of different areas of of allyship um especially being a newcomer to canada like indigenous issues was just something that was not on my radar growing up and definitely had some problematic beliefs when i moved to canada around the indigenous community and it's been a privilege and a journey to continue to unpack that and uh continue to grow as an ally so a lot of different intersections i'm 
still working on and and even in the sight loss community I've been doing this for over 10 years and still not perfect and do something bad probably every day but but at least trying to do better. I think it's really interesting Kat that uh point out that your allyship derives from the fact that you don't have a personal connection with um, the sight loss community in in a way that's like deeply invested in your life because I think that's what many of us think of when we think of allyship it's either someone we know or you know that we've been personally affected by that causes our allyship and so I think that's quite a different and actually refreshing perspective that you know you can be an ally without having a personal relationship with the ally community that you're working with and I think you raise a really good point about in a way it kind of helps preserve you and preserve your energy and um, in a way mobilizes you to continue to do that work so that you're not so deeply affected and and you're not burnt out and, and you're not drained and you're not depleted of of the necessary, you know, mental, physical space that's required to to do that hard work. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, thanks, Phoebe. And I I definitely see that in the work as well. And I think it makes me more understanding, you know, when we have people that approach us at CNIB that, you know, just hold their hands up and they're like, I can't do this, I'm too overwhelmed um you know that really coming from a place of understanding and being like you know I don't have side loss I can't relate to you on that point but I know how you feel just from a different uh context so um I think probably all of us in some way have uh, been burnt in in the fire in this work and even with what Vivi was making mention, I, I totally agree with you as well, Vivi. I find it really impressive at the same time and for all those allies who don't have that connection because I think even working at the CNIB, we're so used to hearing, okay, like you're volunteering at the CNIB because you have a cousin, brother, or maybe you had that that neighbor and Ben who would wander on your lawn with his cane. Uh, so it's surprising that even that brought you to that community of uh, persons with sight loss. And I'm even thinking of applying that to other other diversities. And I think it is very important that we step out of our realm and we don't need that, that prompt of, oh, this is a personal connection and I'm going to make a change because uh, dot, dot, dot is someone I know who is part of a certain community. Uh, If I can just add to that, Ben, like I think we, the dark side to that is if you do know someone um, or even sometimes people who have their lived experience, you then, it's almost like a tokenism, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're, you're like, well, I'm an ally. I once, okay, an example of this was I went, I recently, uh, or a few years ago now, uh, did a walkthrough with um, like a disability coalition of people. And there was someone there who didn't have lived experience of sight loss, but was like, all people that are blind need to have, you know, it in this font and it needs to be this color mm-hmm. and it needs to be this. And I'm like, sorry where where are you getting this information from and it's because they had someone in their life who was blind or uh, had vision loss and Mm. you know that's what they needed and I think sometimes a little bit of knowledge is not always the best thing and you end up kind of tokenizing that experience definitely definitely and it's almost perfect example of putting that template like I met that one blind person they needed help in this way so I'm going to put that template onto every blind person and like I said even every other diversity so very very good point and that almost and I love segues segues are my favorite (laughs) thing ever (laughs) Phoebe knows that I love segues so pretty much uh, it goes into the next question of looking at allyship and enabling and 
finding the differences between uh, enabling and allyship and uh, either one, Vivi or Kat, if you would like to answer this question on your perspective. It's, yeah, it's such an interesting one, especially enabling when we're talking about disability allyship. Um, and because I think there's that kind of ableist underlying belief that people with disabilities are incapable of doing anything. And so the, that from that kind of belief, we have that stereotype that, you know, people either, um, especially in young people with disabilities, I see this from parents without disabilities. It's like, you can't do anything. Therefore, you know, I have to do everything for you. Um, or you, that can also kind of breed some kind of entitlement uh, within, especially young people, I find. Um, so it's really hard to sometimes untangle the hat when you're doing advocacy work. You know, if people grow up with a belief that they either can't do anything or the flip side of that is, you know, I'm special, I'm entitled and I'm not getting what I want. And you get that very ineffective advocacy that comes from that kind of belief. So it's really, it's, I think one of the, as an ally, one of those things that is so important is to make sure that you're empowering that person and being like, I can't do this for you, but I believe that you can do it and I will give you all of the resources in the world and all of the advice and walk with you throughout this. Um, and at the end of the day, and I'm sure you, you've both experienced this as well in, in your professional life, if you get someone that comes to you and says, I really want you to help me with this issue, um, you do it all for me. And then you're like, no, actually, I'm not going to do it all for you. And they're like, fine, I'm, I'm not doing it then. That to me tells me that you didn't find it that important to you in the first place. Because if it was, I th at least this is from my own experiences, like if something is really important to me, I'll find a way to do it. I'll figure it out. Um, so I think it, a lot of, in the disability community, a lot of the importance on this question, Ben, is like, the empowerment piece and showing people that you can do it and then here's how we're going to help you do it. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, Kat. And I guess if I were to add anything, um, you know, a subtle difference between enabling and being an ally or maybe they're related is, you know, the opportunity for that person to have the choice. So yes, of course, you know, they say, I want your help. And you say, yes, I'm going to help guide, support you. Here are all the resources. And they say, oh, no, well, I thought you were going to do it. And then, you know, I think part of allyship and, and our role as advocates, too, is to say, yeah, I'm not going to do it for you. What things would you like me to help you with? Like, what are you struggling with? Where do you need my support? What What are the things you're confident doing on your own? And where do you need the support because to your point Kat then it's giving the um, power and the autonomy back to that person and not not doing it for them but facilitating the path for them to do it themselves and feel empowered and accomplish the things that they want to accomplish and I wholeheartedly agree if you want change you know um, enough you will take at least minimal action if you don't have the confidence or the experience or the knowledge to see it through to the end completely by yourself like you would be open to taking some form of action exactly and when I even for myself when I look at uh, enabling versus allyship and uh, empowerment I look at it as a, a team and collaboration when it does come to allyship and also um with allyship, a, a little fact where, or a little tidbit where 
uh, the spotlight is flashed on maybe the person who may have more power imbalance, but they're able to share that spotlight or say, no, no, don't put it on me, put it on uh, this individual. So I find with enabling, it's counterintuitive where it's it's just doing what we're not looking to do, where you're saying, oh, like you're talking on behalf of the person, you're making the person as a victim. So where you look at uh, disability or oh, you, you can't do this because you're, you live with a disability and that just gives that person learned helplessness for sure. So uh, it's very important. What I see in um, allyship is to be able to pass along the power or even provide the person who is a little bit further back with empowerment to, to speak on their own. So I like the example that you use, Kat, with uh, parents, because uh, those are supposed to be people who are supposed to be the biggest allies in a lot of our lives, especially living with a disability, since they're people who know us the most uh, outside of your siblings and maybe some circumstances a little different. But it is so important to understand that yeah, the, the power has to be there for sure. So just uh, to add to what you both have been saying, it it um, reminded me of something that my mom would say to me um, while I was growing up and uh, in the moments where she thought maybe I, you know, was hoping that she'd create the smoother path for me, not necessarily enabling, but uh, in, in the instances where she didn't think I was empowering myself in the way that she knew that I could, she would often say to me, what would you do if I weren't here? Which for me was the message of, you know, you have the capabilities, you have everything in you that you need to figure it out and to navigate this situation. Not that I'm going to abandon you if you need help, I'm here, but you try to sort it out first and see where you can make progress by, you know, taking that initial action yourself. So I just think that that sentiment really resembles uh, what we're what we're talking about here in terms of allyship versus enabling and, you know, the family complication that, yeah, they are our allies and uh, part of their role is also to empower. And we may not always like that their role is to empower, but um, I sure did learn a lot every time my mom would say, you know, what would you do if I weren't here? I did have to sort it out and figure it out and kind of think about, you know, what were the moves I was going to make. And yeah, uh, the support was there when I needed it, but uh, that just taught me the initial response had to come from me. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually just to add to that, Vivi, you just um, made me think of maybe looking at this from an intersectional approach as well, like, because we have a lot of people that come to us from different cultural background so if we're talking from like a family perspective you know a lot of people coming maybe from outside of Canada and I'm not saying this is exclusive to people outside of Canada but those cultures where it's like if you have a disability we take care of you you know you don't have to do anything and we you everything's taken care of you know the family when someone gets older they move in with their family or they live with their family their whole life. And then if you come from that cultural background and then all of a sudden you're coming to a Canadian organization like CNIB and you're like, I need you to do this for me. And then you're being told, no, you have to do it yourself. Like it's, it's kind of trying to navigate those different intersections and, and cultural experiences that people have as well and and also I, I kind of labeled it as ableism and I I stand by it but I also think that a lot of this especially from a parental perspective it comes from a place of love and wanting to protect others um, so I'm not necessarily you know criticizing parents and saying that they're doing some actively doing something harmful that they shouldn't be but just wanted to clarify that 
No, I think you make some really wonderful points, Kat. And um, Ben and I, as you know, are from cultures that are not, you know, traditionally Canadian. Our, our parents are um, immigrants. And yeah, I think you raised some really good points, um, not only in the, the, the love and affection demonstrated through, um, you know, service, acts of service, but also in a lot of cultures, the expectation is that the disabled person wouldn't be doing anything and wouldn't be taking initiative. So like the expect there, there is little expected. So, um, you know, there is little accomplished. Uh, and I think uh, that's kind of where worlds collide. And uh, that's, that's where I think change can and does happen because yeah, reflecting back to my own um, family, there were, you know, members of my family who didn't expect much from me because I was a disabled person and that was what they knew from what they saw around them. And uh, then there was my mom who expected a lot from me. Um, and I mean, she, was, she wasn't born in Canada, so I don't know where that came from, um, but maybe part of it was being in Canada and seeing could be accomplished in the opportunities that were present here. So yeah, it's it's wonderfully complicated and um, conflicted, but I, I do think that it's present, like there are competing expectations um, when we're looking at the intersection of Canadian culture versus other cultures. Right. And, and sometimes there's even an upside to that. Like I'm just thinking of uh, a friend I have in the UK who um, is partially sighted and from a culture where they have arranged marriages and because of her disability, she was, and th these are her words, you know, she would be branded as like air quote damaged goods, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of feeling like who would want to marry you? Uh, well, not, and uh, so there was no ever expectation for her to have an arranged marriage or to, you know, have not have that choice. And that actually worked in her favor because she ended up, you know, being with someone that she chose for herself and uh, was outside of her cultural community, but lived a very unrestricted life because the expectations of her was so low so I guess sometimes there is just to not make it too serious I guess sometimes there is a positive side to that as well yep the flip side can be interesting yeah it's almost like that whole thing of um when you're traveling for can you can kind of get away with anything <laughs> as <laughs> a joker said and even Vivi I, I love what you you brought up and thank you Kat for that story as well uh Vivi I love what you brought up with your mom making mention that if I wasn't here what would you do and for some reason I'm just picturing my 15 year old self just playing video games, eating chips on the couch or whatever. <laughs> and my mom being like, if I wasn't here, what would you do? And I'm just like, I don't know. But it it's, makes it more it clear to have that in a way, like I would say that was empowerment. That was prompting you that we can't enable you. You can't just fall into to uh, these habits for sure. So and yeah, very... my, my questions were more like, I can't find the oven mitts. Where are they? <laughs> I was like, if I wasn't here, what would you do? Well, I looked in the places where I thought they would be. So <laughs> my, my, my issue was, where was the remote control? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so even going into the next question, and this is a question that's going to be um, definitely thought provoking. This is something I... I thought of myself because me being in, um, I've been in the helping field of social work. So a lot of my classes, I would be um, in classes with women or uh, individuals who identified as women. And uh, within that class being the only male, <laughs> I remember some of the classes, it'd just be me and uh, probably, I don't know, 20 other women. And something I always thought about was when we look at allyship, is there ever a fear that 
comes from allyship where when you're in that one environment or you're supporting a certain diverse community that you're going to be seen as uh, the scapegoat or you're going to be uh, seen as like uh, the the person to take out the frustration uh, with. So I don't know if anybody wants to jump in there. I definitely have a couple of stories for sure on uh, that perception for sure. Yeah, I want to hear your stories, Ben. Tell us the stories. Yeah. Oh, of course, of course. And it's not exactly like actual one-time uh, occurrences, but I believe the feeling, uh, especially because I, I find myself as an ally for for women, I find myself an ally for the LGBTQ2S community as well and uh, other diverse uh other diverse communities, um, other religious communities. And it was always a little bit of a fear where when you do go into those spaces, because you have that power or because you are seen in in that light that your say wouldn't you wouldn't have say at all, or not that I even wanted to say, I was more there for to listen, but it was almost like this is what you're doing to us. This is what you men are doing to us. And bed, we're going to take what you right. men are doing or heterosexual male. This is how you are or uh Christian person. This is what you're doing. So I, it was at the back of my head. Sometimes I learned how to kind of get over it where it's not necessarily the case where when you do go in that spaces, people aren't necessarily coming to use you as a scapegoat. But I believe there's people out there who almost feel like, okay, if I do go to these environments, I will be the sacrificial lamb of uh, uh, that diverse community. So I'm wondering if you, our folks have any input or any any stories or anything that you would like to speak about. So I, I can go. I've definitely uh, seen that and in the the women's rights movement and one example of that is um like uh what do they call it like reclaim the night like those marches that women go out and march at night and um some of them uh permit uh people that don't identify as women to attend and some are women identified only people can attend the, the march and that always definitely can cause some some hostilities and some different feelings about you know whether allies have a a a role to play in every aspect of something or whether allies are only in certain aspects of of a movement and uh I don't think it's clear cut I don't think there's like, yes, you should be doing this and no, you should be doing that. And I know there's like various different opinions in different communities around um, where allies belong and, and what their roles are. Um, I definitely share with you though, the anxiety of feeling like you're being perceived to be talking on behalf of others or you're not uh, giving the community a voice. You know, if you're there speaking on, behalf of someone else and um just finding that balance of being like community-led but not being passive either as an ally and being like mm -hmm. well I'm just gonna let the sit back and let the community do all the work like it's really hard to find that balance um and that's something that I find really difficult and something I feel deeply uncomfortable with in the work that I do is when I'm having a conversation with someone and they ask me if I have sight loss and I say no. And then it's like, I feel like I'm letting the side down. Mm, There's always no. that like pause and where I can see they're like processing it in their brain. And it's, I find that like, I don't know why, but I just find that so uncomfortable because then I feel mm. like a fraud, you know, cause they asked me the question and then I've not given them the answer that, maybe they wanted maybe that's in my head but that's how I feel I'm just thinking as you both are talking I guess there's an underlying anxiety that you know Kat you were speaking about power dynamics earlier and 
I guess in the issue that you raised about, you know, who gets to be an ally for what, is there an underlying anxiety that, you know, if um, someone is an ally who is perceived as belonging to a group that holds a certain amount of power, be they uh, a male identified person or a non-racialized person, does that then the focus away from you know the issue that is being um, the thing that needs to have attention drawn to it. Um, and I guess I understand that it's complicated, but I I don't know. I think I have a little bit of trouble with you know certain communities allow allies and certain communities don't because for me getting back to our you know scholarly past in my world that's kind of saying well certain people can use these words and certain people can't and like I mean language is is a tool that everybody can and should have access to so I I think in some ways like it can be divisive although I understand the problematic of having you know someone there that is perceived to hold a position of power, but I mean, and in essence, that's what an ally is, right? It's a co-conspirator. It's someone who is perceived to belong from um, a community that is powered, supporting, and standing by um, people in communities that wouldn't necessarily or don't at the moment have that power. I, I totally relate to that and I I think that's one of the reasons I got really burnt out doing some of the work I did earlier in life just because like the movements that we exist in you know or, or participate in are not perfect in themselves like they have their own like divisiveness and identity politics and you can get really bogged down in in all of that kind of stuff that is maybe not as important as the it well it is important but not as important as the the task at hand and i think that plays into another anxiety that just came to mind that i have which is perfectionism and i think that's why i don't necessarily like to use the term ally to refer to myself because I I feel like you know heavy is the crown who's on the head of the ally you know if you're saying I'm an ally then you're almost claiming that you are this perfect person that's free of ableism and racism and sexism and all of that stuff and it's I think maybe opening yourself up to that scapegoat feeling as well that we we mentioned so I think that's that's definitely a challenge that I face is that perfectionism I don't know if either of you maybe have experienced that as well I'm just curious to know if there's another word that you'd like Kat or that you know (laughs) feels comfortable to you I would say even supporter yeah um, me too supporter co-conspirator yeah because I find that cat, you raised a really good point coming from me just dropping out my ally at the beginning for sure. <laughs> you called me out, cat. You called me out. Um, I, I find that you raised a very, very good point because it almost puts you for that pers- uh, perfection, that space of perfection. And yeah, like looking at people, we're, we're not all perfect. It's ongoing learning. No one's going to know exactly someone's experiences. So I, I love how you just brought that up because that just, wow, that blew my mind right there because it's like, I'm, I'm probably not even perfect in my even own community, right? So uh, yeah, it's a very good point. Well, I, I think I, I definitely had my awakening around this with um, some of the work that's happened, you know, after, especially over the last couple of years, you know, with the... Uh, Black Lives Matter movement and all of that uh, work that's been going on and the you know the opposite of racist is not not racist 
it's anti-racist because everyone is going to have some kind of racism within their beliefs, whether that's, you know, they're experiencing it externally or it's something that's internalised as well. Um, So it's not about perfectionism. It's not like you have this, you know, eight ounces of racism within you and you're going to shed that racist weight and then you're not racist anymore. (laughs) Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's something that is continual work and you're never going to be perfect but I think maybe allyship is a commitment to to the shedding of that rather than seeing it as like an end destination that you're going to reach yeah I like that it's and and we all are right we all are works in progress we all have our preconceived notions about people based on you know anything and everything so yeah nobody nobody's perfect so as i was making mention i am the the king of segways so uh the next question definitely has to do what you were speaking of uh is there any interesting terms and perspectives that you would like to add when it comes to uh the idea of allyship but we're going to call it supporters (laughs) after this Yeah, I mean, I, I can jump in. Maybe I feel like I keep going first. Like, ironically, oh, no, I'm not, not being a good cat. ally like, here. But yeah, I, yeah, I guess. No, we're, no, we're you're, you're, you're our guest. We want to <laughs> shine the spotlight on you. Oh, thank you. So I, I will go then. And uh, um, and just, I guess, going back to what you were saying earlier, Ben, around the scapegoat feeling, I think having a thick skin and being open to feedback is something that, is really important with allyship because if you're truly committed to being an ally to the community and you're with that community regularly and interacting, you're going to do things wrong. You're going to come up against frustrations that other people have against you. And hopefully you're going to learn from that. But I think, you know, people are going to give that feedback to you in varying degrees of, um, I guess, anger or, you know, all different ends of the spectrum there. So I think what I always tell myself is just because you made a mistake does not mean that you fundamentally are a bad person. And I think some people really internalize that, you know, they maybe said, uh, a racist thing you know unintentionally or or did something unintentionally to someone in the community and then they receive that feedback and they're like I'm a terrible person oh I'm just the worst and then the other person has to then comfort them you know and it's almost a really bad dynamic mm-hmm. to get yourself into and I I've definitely been on both sides of this I've uh, I've definitely not been perfect on this and I've received feedback and you know your first reaction is no I didn't I didn't mean it like that you know you like fold your arms and you're like they just don't understand that my intentions were good and you know oh and and then yeah it's just a, a difficult situation to be in so maybe you've, you've both experienced that on on either side but I think being open to feedback is so important in allyship. Yeah, I like what you said, Kat. And basically, it's like, don't be afraid to make mistakes. And when you do make mistakes, be open to forgiving yourself and remind yourself that you're not perfect. And I mean, and neither are the people that you're dealing with, right? Even the people you're supporting, they're not perfect either. So, yeah, um, we actually, we um, covered some of this in our allyship program that we recently ran, uh, especially around like how you intended something is not always how it's received. So you might have done something that you thought was with good intentions and then it was actually oppressive in some way or or hurtful to the community. Um, And I guess a good example of that in our community is the, you know, you're such an inspiration. Oh, you know, yes. you're, so, you're such an inspiration. You woke mm-hmm. up and you brushed your teeth and you walked down the street and that inspires people. And, you know, it comes from a, 
a good place where people want to be supportive and the intentions are good, but it's not really a compliment. So true. And we definitely have to put in the show notes that um, allyship, um, the allyship workshop, and that was incredible. I, I listened to it and it was, it was really, really good. Really enjoyed it. And just to speak of what uh, you were saying, Kat, and what you were saying as well, Vivi, um, I, I, you just can't take it personally. <laughs> you, if you do receive that feedback, you don't take it personal because I, I found, I remember a story where I, I was having a conversation with uh, one of my uh, female friends and they're making mention of uh, certain oppressions for, for women. And I remember hearing the conversation and I'm gonna be as honest and transparent. At first I was like, what? what? Like, why, why is that bad? Why is that bad? Oh, why, all us men are bad then? All us men are bad, what's going on? Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then I remember after just sitting down doing research, after looking more into the topic and after like, I took the emotion out. I took the ego out. I took the defensiveness out. And after I was like, oh my gosh, yes, it's it's true. <laughs> it is true. And why am I taking it personally? It's it's the structure. It's structured in our society. It's it's ingrained in the way we think. So why am I taking it personally? Why, why am I uh, getting so defensive about it? And I think it's so important once you take away taking it personally and defensively you're more an apt to listen and then once you you listen both parties actually feel heard and you get it you so it's all about kind of taking that wall down and be like I, I'm such a good person I donate every year to <laughs> this charity and I I uh what you call walk dogs um for free so <laughs> I don't know, like you just have to take that personal aspect out and actually look at the structure and the systemic uh, oppression and then see how we could help as well, right? So I, I feel that's the important part about um, uh, being a supporter for sure. Yeah, and I would just add like, and this goes for, you know, both supporters and those of us who are members of the community, like, don't be afraid to ask questions like to Kat's point, you know, someone may not understand why is it not a compliment to say you blind person are so inspirational because you got up, brushed your teeth and got dressed today. Like, don't be afraid to ask those questions, um, you know, because that's where the knowledge lies and, you know, everybody will learn in terms of the intention, right? It was intended as a compliment. Well, why isn't it a compliment? I'll explain to you why it's not a compliment. And then there's room for communication and understanding and, um, you know, further support and progress. We're almost running out of time. So uh, Kat, if you have any last comments that you would like to share with uh, the listeners before uh, we head out, yeah, I I just wanted to, I guess, end on like that, what can I do as someone who either identifies an ally or wants to be stronger in their allyship? And I think it's so important to um, put your money where your mouth is. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just about speaking up and, um, you know, what people call like virtue signaling you know posting about injustice on social media and they're not actually like having any self-reflection or doing anything about it so uh, lots of different ways you can be an ally you know educate yourself um, get involved in organizations that are working on those issues that you're passionate about um, sometimes it's even Going back to putting your money where your mouth is, like uh, pay, pay, being a patron of businesses that are aligned with your values and are maybe, you know, Black-owned business or LGBTQ-owned business or um, those communities, you know, that could really uh, benefit from having that support and 
and buying your stuff from there rather than from somewhere like Amazon or, you know, some faceless <laughs> corporation. Uh, don't sue us, Amazon, for, for calling that out on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, you've, you can't be an ally without taking action and doing the thing it's not just about speaking about it on social media and sharing a post and putting your Facebook photo as a black square or whatever, you know, it has to be uh, aligned action as well as uh, speaking up. So that would be my piece of advice and final comment on the topic. Kat, thank you so very much for being on uh, the episode of the lens and the allyship episode. It's so good to have you. Glad to be here. I'm. Uh, it's gonna be weird listening to my own voice. And like, like I said, I'm number one fan and subscribed and <laughs> excited to to listen to the episode and uh, hear some of the other topics you have lined up. Like you said before, it was an organization where dreams died. Well, here on the lens, dreams <laughs> just thrived for sure. <laughs> okay, so thank you everybody for listening to the lens. Uh, Please subscribe to any platforms that you are currently on. Uh, definitely press that like or subscribe button. And then also, if you want some more information about uh, DNI and intersectionality, please visit our diversity and inclusion website. You just go to advocacy and then click on We Are CNIB. And then if you have any show ideas or interest on being on the show, you can email advocacy at cnib.ca once again advocacy at cnib.ca so once again thank you for listening to the lens living diverse i was one of your hosts ben along with my co-host vivi shout out vivi do a nice ciao. shout out ciao for now everybody excellent once again thank you peace